1: Welcome back to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and visiting instructor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm speaking today with Yani Lati. Dr. Lati is an Academy of Finland Research Fellow and adjunct professor of history at the University of Helsinki and is the author of several articles and books, including Wars for Empire, Apaches, the United States, and the Southwest Borderland. We'll be discussing his newest book today, The American West and the World, Transnational and Comparative Perspectives, which came out just this year in 2019 with Rutledge. Uh, Welcome
2: to the New Books Network, Yanni. Thanks, thanks. Uh, Great great being here. Thanks for for inviting me here and uh, looking forward to this. Why don't we begin first by just hearing a little bit about
1: yourself. What's your background in the Academy? How did you get interested in history generally? And more specifically, how did you get interested in the history of the American West?
2: About history in general, I think I've been always interested in history in some form or another, uh, especially the American West. When I was a kid here, growing up in Finland, uh, in the, in the eighties. Uh, they used to be, they used to show Westerns on TV regularly. There was a lot of Western comic books here that you can read. And I certainly did my fair share of those. Uh, there's a lot of Western toys, these miniature figurines and all that stuff. Cause can play Western team, uh, uh kids, kids, kids can play Western team plays. It's, 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 it really has changed a lot. Uh, uh, compared to this day, that now we uh, now we're having uh, video games and all that kind of stuff that seems to uh, be less and less things about or the westerns. But when I was growing up, westerns were a big big thing in Finland, uh, and of course, the, uh, what you can see on TV was well, there was two channels and. If they, one of them so the Western, so you you, <laughs> you didn't have a much lot of choices back then. Uh, but I was very uh, very much a Western enthusiast as a, as a kid. Uh, and after high school, I there was a couple of options. One of them was history, and I managed to get in, at the uh, accepted at the University of Helsinki. And at the University of Helsinki, there was a couple of very influential professors at the time, especially Marco Henriksson who's been really a, a kind of if you want to use the word pioneer in western history and in american history in general here in finland so his influence was was really crucial and they had these kind of they understand they still have fulbright uh prof- visiting professors so one of them was john wonder from university of nebraska lincoln and and of course he's a big name in in western history i took his courses so that was one of the things that got me interested in this also, in 1998, uh, as an undergrad, so it's, it's really 20 years ago, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, 20 years ago as an undergrad, I had the chance to sp- spend a semester at UC Berkeley. And there was this Western graduate seminar that I somehow managed to get myself into, although I was an undergrad, uh, taught by uh, Professor Kirvin Klein, and that was probably the best best university course I've ever been to and it's just got this this having these these people around me these these great western historians that that got me got me into this uh into this field uh did my phd uh in 2009 I've written uh and authored four books since then uh the first ones were on the southwest borderlands and the apaches and the u.s apache wars uh uh Using postcolonial theory and later, or just kind of this new military history, so I guess already writing those 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 books, I thought about that the West in, in a transnational context that it was not unique, it was not exceptional. Although I was very well aware that Americans have a long traditions of, of exceptionalism, uh, and, and being an outsider, uh, I think it helped helped quite a bit.
1: Tell us a little bit about global and transnational Transnational. histories. What does it mean to think about a particular place in a global or in a transnational context?
2: I think you you need to kind of get away from the separation that there's internal history and international history, that you don't have to uh, divide everything uh, through external and uh, internal, and you get beyond that division. Uh, where it gets difficult to tell what is in, in international history and what's internal to a specific country. Just kind of uh, not ignoring nation states or na- national boundaries, but kind of moving beyond and uh, seeing through uh, uh, those boundaries. Being interested in uh, in movements, connections, uh, flows of ideas, uh, commodities, peoples. This kind of realizing that. Nation states are a uh, uh, historical construction, or uh, uh, a relatively new one, uh, as, as well. That nation states are are uh, not isolated, uh, self-contained is actually a better word. Self-contained, autonomous units, but they operate in this in this in this global setting where people and uh, uh, materials and everything uh, crosses boundaries, although. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's kind of what I want to point out here is that uh, that the, you can approach these kind of circulations and flows from many perspectives and in many fields. So that's why how I got into, the, into this this kind of idea that writing a trash national or, or global history of American West would be a worthwhile endeavor, but of course kind um, of intimidating uh, effort because. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, there's so much stuff you can include. You could include, uh, and there's so so much stuff. You you there's too much stuff to master as as a as a specialist in Southwest Borderlands uh, in the late uh, 1800s on the Apaches and the U.S. Army. Moving from that uh, to American West in the world it was a kind of daunting daunting prospect. Uh, and actually, this book uh, it started out as a reader for Rutledge and uh, the idea was that uh just to include for teachers these essential uh articles and, and experts from books uh that other scholars have been uh writing about the American West and and in you know, a transnational or comparative perspective but then it somehow evolved into this this kind of monograph where i'm trying to synthesize certain national connection certain connection certain global impacts on the West of course uh, in a project like this uh, a big topic small book you can't master everything you can't uh, you can't include everything and I'm, I'm not, certainly not an expert on, on everything for example here uh, uh, so you had to choose uh, and of course these decisions they reflect what I'm comfortable with what I can handle and what issues I know. Uh, so violence is there, uh, a big deal. Also, these uh, uh, intimate empires or everyday imperial networks are, are one thing and I'm, I'm really fascinated about. How colonizers built their power on the everyday life, on domestic life, on 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 on, on, on that sort of things. So. I guess uh, uh uh the idea was to synthesize what has been done, uh at least part of it, and then also provide incentives, avenues for future for research for, for others to to tackle in the in the future, hopefully. <laughs> so
1: as, as a synthesis, um, and it is a remarkably well-sourced book, I've been mining the uh, very extensive bibliographies that are in there for my own work in the last few days, actually. But um, has there been a lot of recent work looking at the West as a transnational and as a global space in recent years? And if so, is this a change of how people, particularly non-scholars, usually think about the West, in your opinion? Um, there
2: has been... Co- quite A few scholars doing this kind of transnational or, or comparative stuff, like Margaret Jacobs, uh, uh, with the uh, indigenous uh, 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 child deductions in Australia or in the American West, uh, and many others as well. Uh, but, but of course, there's always been, uh, ever since Herbert Bolton and his uh, Greater America or his Spanish Borderlands. So, uh, then these comparative frontiers have been, uh, existed for a long time. Howard Lamar in the the 70s already. Uh, So is there more? Uh, I think yes. But is it unique in this time and place? No. But on the other hand, I would argue that, um, I would argue that, um, that, of course, historians always write from their own time. And in our present day, uh, Global issues are more and more uh, seen as as vital and, and pertinent for the future of the uh, of, of of our societies. The climate crisis, uh, the refugee refugee issues uh, on the US-Mexican border, uh, on the Mediterranean here in Europe, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, as 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 more and more people inhabit the planet, uh, we have all all these connections uh with improvements in technology. Uh the way we're handling this this interview right now uh is yeah. one example of that. Uh uh speaking from Finland to, to, to Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh uh all these issues that uh people are more aware of global uh, connections uh that we are in it this um, this world together and I think this shows in in how historians approach their topics as well and what kind of emphasis they have on, on looking at the past. They, uh, we uh, tend to uh, take our own back, baggage here, from here to the past and try to understand how the past has been shaped uh, uh, through these connections that there have been global or transnational uh, impacts and influences uh, already uh, hundreds of years ago this is not globalization, if you want to use the term, uh, not a unique modern phenomenon. Or at least it has earlier precedents. Uh, that it uh, it has this kind of root system uh, uh, in earlier times.
1: Well, let's talk about that root system, as you as you put it. And I'm interested, let's get into the book a little bit, because you start off pushing the chronology pretty far back. And I'm curious, what are some of the earliest ways that the American West has been a global place, a global zone? And I'm thinking particularly here in terms of movements and migrations, where it has a pretty long pedigree as a people as people have moved into and moved through this place from elsewhere. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Sure. Uh, can I about go back to the to the previous question still? I, uh, yes, the other section, uh, how non-scholars think, because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's there's a clear uh, division there in my view. Although more and more people are aware of of of, of bigger, for example, environmental issues and all that kind of stuff, uh, for to American West. Still, the public image of American West is still very much this exceptional American uh, birthplace of kind of American identity, birthplace of what American is, uh, means. Uh, there's of course clear examples how politicians use the West uh, uh, as uniquely American uh, uh, idea, uh, but of course how how Hollywood approaches us, uh, the West, because um, there's a recent um, uh, film on Netflix on the Coen Brothers. The Ballad of Buster Strux, for example. The West there, in that anthology movie, is very white. Uh, it's almost alarm- alarmingly white. Uh, there are all these typecasts, these, these Western type of these prospectors, uh, gunslingers, uh, and others, uh, wagon train. Uh, but they all seem so uh, white. Uh, because, for example, take the prospectors. Uh, the Chinese were the biggest uh single ethnic group uh in, in the California Cold Rush. Uh there were Hawaii, Hawaiian native Hawaiians there in California, uh, not, thousands of them in the Cold Rush. Uh and this is this just one example how uh what the academics are doing is not penetrating how the public sees the West, how the West is uh the West is still bound by these older images of, of in in movies and elsewhere where it's almost universally white and it's universally male as well. If you take the, 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 the film part of Buster Scruggs and the, the female um, voice there is very, uh, uh, it, it, there's not a lot of it. Uh, native voices are uh, basically unheard of. They are just these native native warriors attacking attacking the wagon train and they're basically screaming and shouting and as Indians have been doing in the films for hundred years. Uh, yeah. Oh, so there's, there's a lot there uh, that uh, that, uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. You bring out the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and you can compare that to an extent to a popular new video game, Red Dead Redemption 2, which... My understanding is that it has its own issues but that it does portray the west as at least a somewhat more international place so it also kind of depends on what media you're looking at how much this idea about this new idea of the west that scholars are pursuing how much it filters through into the mainstream public
2: okay that's that's an interesting point i, I don't know any of that video game. so <laughs> <laughs> so but that that's a good point to make yeah yeah of yeah. course not every movie or not every tv series approaches the same way uh uh the uh, uh there are differences, of course, but still uh kind of disappointed with the with the Cohen brothers because they are my one of my favorite filmmakers so uh, well, enough of that so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so so uh
1: yeah, sorry, I was just going to reiterate the question, sure. which is what are some of the earliest ways that the West can be looked at as a global zone, particularly in terms of movements and migrations?
2: If you want to go really. Back in time, of course, there's the, the native migrations over the Bering Strait and from some Siberia to North America. and That's one way of, 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 of course, understanding a transnational movement in the West, uh, as I briefly mentioned in the book. But um, if you want to step a little closer to our modern day, uh, of course, there's the, what the Europeans uh, brought to the West. Uh, the European empires uh, Let's take the early 1800s, for example. Uh, European empires, not only the British or the the Spaniards, uh, but also the the French and the the Russians were basically competing for the West, as as we define the West today. Uh, And they had these different influences, different uh, motivations of being there. Uh, And they brought all sorts of international things or transnational things to the West. For example, horses. Uh, and there's been a lot of uh, discussion and excellent scholarly work by Pekka Hamelainen on, on the horse cultures on the plain uh, Plains, and, and horses are a culture uh, import in the West, and they they spread mm-hmm. far beyond uh, the European settlements uh, and far earlier than the Europeans reached, uh, for example, the Northern Plains, uh, and horses are one example how this, these interactions and how these Transnational things are shaping the West and the people in it before uh, it becomes actually the West uh, as we know it. Others, of course, are microbes. Uh, this Colombian exchange uh, uh, own scholarly uh, tradition of, of, of studying those as well. Uh, how microbes uh, uh, diseases impact and, and, and shape 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 the, the West uh, and all all, all of, of Americas. Uh, in advance of European settlement. Uh, What else could I mention? Uh, uh, Of course, uh, uh, these different impacts, these different things impact uh, different uh, peoples uh, differently, (laughs) put it that way. Uh, The fur trade is one example how the West is uh, connected to the world. Uh, And it's of course, it's very very different kind of fur trade cultures involved. Uh, within the West, for example, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, uh, in the late 1700s, uh, early 1800s, there's a lot of a lot of European powers competing once more about the, 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 the potential in seal furs and, and 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 trade and commerce. And the natives are the natives are actually uh, active participants in this. Uh, they. Uh, not only supply heights uh, for for the European uh, vessels, uh, but they become very expert in in bargaining. Uh, they know how to manip- manipulate the European uh, traders. Uh, many natives also hire uh, get hired on these European uh, ships, and they sip, sail uh, to Hawaii, uh, to China, and and the idea that we have Native Americans uh, on board a European vessel, a trading ship uh, in China is, is something that in some, somehow clearly manifests this, this kind of transnational movement in my way, in my understanding that, that the West was really uh, exceptionally transnational. Also, one ex- other example I want to point out is the, is the Japanese sailors I mentioned in the book. Uh, winter 1834 uh, ground on, on Cape flattery in, in the olympic peninsula and they are basically a, 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 a japanese um, um japanese, uh, uh merchant vessel that hits up because he sits by hurricane and then drifts all across the pacific uh and ends up in 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 on on the, the the, the local natives, the Maheg are uh, basically captured these people, and released by the Hudson Bay Company, a multinational British uh, uh, corporation. And after they they're captured by the, the, the Native Americans, these Japanese sailors uh, are shipped by these British uh, company ships to Europe and. They are on on China and 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 uh, as Mayas they never reach home. But uh, we, once more, we have these uh, we have these Japanese sailors who accidentally end up in the West, but they end up in this mixed uh, and transnational zone where fur trading is, is has been going on for for a number of years already, and how they they kind of uh, fit into this. They're not. They are are new to this paper. It's new to them, but the Maka, the local natives, uh, uh, they know know how to handle them. Uh, They capture them, they trade them to the British, uh, uh, and benefit from that as well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: This book is also a comparative study. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering, in what ways was the American West similar to other regions that had been conquered by settler colonists? And in what ways is it different? And I guess maybe more to the point, what do we gain? As historians, as people interested in this region, by looking at the American West in conjunction with, say, a place like New Zealand or South Africa, for instance.
2: What we gain is understanding how settler colonialism was a transnational global phenomenon and how it manifested itself in different places. Uh, that's one way of, of looking at it. That settler colonial cultures, uh, they, of course, they varied, there were differences, uh, but they operate on the same principle logic uh, that settler colonial. Uh, Idea was to replace the natives uh, and take the land, not to use the natives primarily as a labor force uh, or uh, to, to primarily uh, exploit natural natural resources. Although those were also part of the part of the deal as well. But getting to understand how these uh, different siliconal colonial uh, projects and countries operated in a somewhat similar way is, is, is one perspective. On the other hand, um, you get an understanding that that many of the people in, this, uh, in these regions moved from one place to the next. They were connected to each other. So you had family members uh, residing in Australia, others in New Zealand, still others in the American West. And the, perhaps the, the same family has started from Finland or or more likely from Ireland or Germany uh, at this time. So understand understand oh, how these were connected to each other, these places, that they were not uh, born in isolation, that Silileries silo-colonial, uh, did not only come to the American West, but they were drawn to different, different places. Uh, and, and in connection, you get a real good understanding how Sililer colonialism was promoted uh, at the time. How it was advertised and this land of promise promises land of plenty uh, ideas of, of 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 owning your free land, owning your own piece of land the Homestead Act and, and the American West, but it happened elsewhere as well. Similar kinds of advertising was going on in for example in Brazil even or in Argentine, uh, not to mention South Africa or New Zealand. That they were trying to lure, lure settlers uh, uh, to these regions with kind of these similar types of images of, of owning your own land, of 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 of, of, of making it rich, or, or kind of Edenic paradise images. There's a lot of these promotional materials. For example, from Canada, the Prairies, that kind of uses uh, the imagery. Uh, to itself, and even names one of these uh, many of these books as the next best west or the last best west. Or uh, so it's kind of leaning on this this notion that there are these regions, not just the American West, but others in the world as well, where you can uh, achieve similar kinds of of, of life goals and, and make your dreams come true. Of course, realities are also very different, uh, but they are so also in the American West. Uh, and and, and these kind of ideas. Also, one of the things I'd like to mention is this discussion of immigration in Europe, especially in German contexts. They replace the immigrant term with, with Auslanddeutsche, which is basically Germans abroad in the, in the mid-1800s. And this kind of idea that you'll remain German, wherever you are, if you are in, in, in China, if you're in Australia, if you're in New Zealand, if you're in Brazil, if you're in Colorado, uh, you're still an Ausland-Deutsche. Uh, and these kind of uh, <clears throat> connections uh, are very uh, interesting, in my view. And also, uh, the idea that you are a Deutsche, you are a German. Uh, the people who actually move from Bavaria or or... Hessen or uh, whatever region in Germany, they didn't necessarily see themselves Germans at the time when they were moving uh, to Canada or American West. But on later on, this kind of this national identity default among those those immigrants and this kind of national belonging. It's kind of ironic because uh, you're not living in Germany anymore, but you're still. Starting to identify yourself as a German, not as a as a as a as a Bavarian or whatever uh, local uh, culture you want to use, and also the settler colonial idea is very important in my perspective, uh, perspective because people moved from back back and forth. They went from one settler colony to the next. Uh, from, for example, people crossed the Canadian and the U.S. border several times. Ah, uh, they could, uh, and many of also. Could move from Canada to US West uh, to Australia and then back home. Uh, this was one of the things that, uh, uh, in, in different contexts, sure, but later on, in the early 1900s, that my paternal great grandfather did. He left Finland because there were no jobs here. Uh, and he moved on, on, on to, to uh, Michigan for a while uh, and then moved further westward, I think it was Minnesota. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then after a while there, there was the option of of bringing his family from here to Minnesota or returning to Finland. And he he got back It's kind of lucky because uh, my grandmother was born after he got back. Uh, But these kind of different um, movements, different kinds of um, uh, uh, things that cross borders. One of the more obvious examples, perhaps, is as communications, uh, letters. Uh, we don't write letters anymore. We write emails, but they basically electronic letters. Uh, but in the 1800s, almost every European family knew someone who was in one of these settler colonies, or had a close relative uh, own these silicones colonies, and they were in. Uh, very voluminous uh, exchange of layers and, and connections where people were uh, uh, offering their views of how was life there, how was life that in that place. And people also made these recruiting trips from from Australia or the American West back to Europe, and try to recruit their relatives and often the migration processes were this kind of step or a chain migrations. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here. And, uh, and uh, and it's it's kind of get quite uh overwhelming even uh, and I've tried to put quite a bit on this this small book, hopefully not too much uh about but, 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 but uh, uh it gets kind of bewildering these kind of different uh uh the connections because uh, when I was a kid growing up and it, the skills the school system that i i uh participated in. It, it, everything was taught uh, based on nation states. There was Germans, there was Russians, there were Finns, uh, there was Americans, uh, and these kind of worked as autonomous units uh, competing with each other or or, or uh, allying with each other. And these nation states were the, the prime units of how history was conceived in, in in Finnish schools back then, and in some ways still is. Uh, but you start thinking about differently. And this, this is what this book offers and what transnational history offers is one way of looking at the past. It's not necessarily more correct than any other way, but it's one way of understanding how humans have uh, acted and interacted in, in, in the past. Uh, that was a long answer, that one. <laughs>
1: There's a great line in the book that I found very striking. You say that histories of violence seldom follow the boundaries of the nation-state. Can you uh, unpack that a little bit for us? How does the, West, the American West illustrate the transnational histories of the violence of, say, settler colonialism, for instance?
2: Uh, once more, we have many different ways of approaching this. Uh, of course, violence crossed borders in a concrete manner in the southwest, where the Native Americans, the Comanches and the Apaches were engaged in national raiding on the Mexican side. On the other hand, we have these uh, individuals who li- in their lives served multiple armies, engaged in multiple uh, 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 colonial wars. One of them is Emilio Kostraditsky, uh, which I mentioned in the book, uh, uh, of Russian and German descent, born in Russia, educated in Germany, uh, serving in the Russian Navy, and then abandoning uh, his post uh, and ended up in, in, in Mexican Army, running the Apaches there. And after that, as a customs officer in, in the U.S. side, and further on, on the road, uh, Kostolitsky ends up as, a, as, a, as, a, as actually a, uh, uh, a spy, as a, as a, as a, as a federal agent. Uh, but one, one of these things – and also many American uh, – noted American figures from Civil War history or the, American, the Western history as well, like uh, Henry uh, Hopkins Sibley, uh, the general who served uh, as, as a Confederate general uh, uh, trying to uh, invade New Mexico in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, the early years of the Civil War. Before that, he was an officer in the, in the regular U.S. Army and then as an officer in the Confederate Army. And after the after the, after South's loss, uh, he ended up in the in the, in the Ottoman, Ottoman army in, in Egypt, and and he was not alone. There was others as well. There was officers who served in the U.S. Army that ended up, uh, for example, in the Boer War in, in South Africa, and of course the U.S. Army itself in the West uh, had enlisted men from basically every. Western nation in, 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 uh, on the planet, from Australia uh, to Germany to Ireland, uh, uh, from New Zealand to Canada, from Brazil. So in this, this is one way of approaching how uh, violence is not confined uh, by national borders. Of course, the one other way of, of, of looking at this is by looking at certain types of violence, for example lynching or Genocide is, of course, is a more modern term and a very contested term as, as such. And some scholars argue that doesn't fit the American West at all. While well, some others paint the whole post-Columbian 500 years as one massive uh, uh, Native American genocide. Uh, there are, of course, others uh, like Benjamin Madley, Madley's uh, book on, on, on California a couple years back. It's a very good one. Uh, he depicts these different kind of genocidal moments and, and tendencies uh, within the U.S. conquest of, of California. And, uh, and he also, in another article, he compares uh, what happens in California, what happened in, in Tasmania, and in German Southwest Africa. He identifies different patterns of, of genocidal behavior and genocidal uh, outcomes in these different similar colonial situations. That's one way of looking at these things. Uh, what else could I say? Uh, Wireless crosses borders and is, is, is not contained. Of course, colonial armies as such. I mentioned the US Army here and I mentioned the, the some of the, the, the high-ranking officers who ended up in, 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 in fighting in Africa from the US West. But uh, of course, colonial armies as such are very multinational uh, uh, groupings of men. Not only American, the US Army in the West. But takes, for example, uh, uh, German East Africa, uh, the Askari there, the, the, the native troops, who actually not from East African regions, uh, but many came from South Africa. There's a lot of Sudanese soldiers there. Uh, and different colonial armies usually reflected this, this multinational, transnational character. Uh, the officers were usually white, but. German or French, but still from European uh, extraction. But the natives, the the, the, the illicit band, are a very, very mixed mixed bunch. So that's one way of understanding violence in a transnational context.
1: race and gender are also categories which um in the american west as well as 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 other settler colonial societies uh transcend borders um could you tell us a little bit about how the global nature of the american west becomes inscribed on people's bodies in certain ways
2: Uh, once more we have a tons of different avenues uh, i could tell you or tons of different avenues to choose uh one of them of course is the chinese migration uh uh, most Americans know that the Chinese were essential in, in California agriculture or in building the, the the transcontinental railroads, but most don't realize that at the same time that the Chinese entered, for example, entered the, the California Gold Rush, there was t- thousands of Chinese in the Victorian Gold Rush in Australia, and they were uh, as slavery became. Uh, banned in different empires, it was usually the Chinese who ended up uh, replacing the the, the African uh, uh, slaves in, in, in as, as a labor force, uh, whether it was uh, German Samoa, uh, German uh, Guinea or uh, South Africa once more. Uh, and this also drew these cellular colonial nations together uh, in uh, curtailing um, uh, uh, Chinese immigration. The, the Exclusion Act in the U.S. in 1882 is basically the first major uh, exclusion act targeting a certain ethnic group and uh, barring certain ethnic group from entering the West. But similar kinds of legislation, uh, inspired by the American uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, was was also uh, 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 in Canada. Uh, in South Africa, of course, in Australia, by, by the turn of the century, the whole white, white Australia policy became basically the no, national norm. Uh, and it was also targeting Chinese immigrants. So that's one way of understanding how race uh, is a transnational phenomenon uh, uh, in a pre-World War I times. Of course, the Chinese were the first, first uh grouping of people who were termed as illegal aliens or illegal immigrants in the US, uh, uh, which is so, so, um, so relevant today, the terminology and all this discussion pertaining to, to Latin American immigrants in the US or African or Middle Eastern immigrants in Europe. Uh, but that's one way of understanding. Another I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't way uh, which I would bring up is, of course, this uh, portability Uh, or or the global portability of of middle-class cultures, white middle-class cultures, Uh, the Victorian era, the Victorian uh, 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 kind of uh, respectability uh, was played out in different colonial situations. Not only where the British went, but also where the others, uh, the Germans, the French, the the, the Dutch, uh, 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 resided Uh, this kind of different ceremony of, of how to dress, how to eat, how to um, uh, live, uh, with whom uh, to engage in intimate connections, uh, uh, the, the position and role of women in colonies, broadly as a civilizing influence and as these fragile uh, entities that needed to be protected from local local men uh, is very similar kinds of, of, of ideas and patterns of, of experiences and behaviors. In different colonial situations pertaining to white uh, middle-class cultures, and this applies to the American West as well. Uh, uh, I studied uh, my first book was on, on on the U.S. Army in the in the in the Southwest, and it was about their culture of these colonizers. And one essential aspect was how these U.S. Army officers and their wives tried to transplant Eastern uh, behavioral middle-class Eastern behavioral norms to the Southwest, and of course these norms. Uh, held uh, the standard was also in, in 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 Victorian Britain, and these middle class ideas of uh, uh, to the West, and West also is, is part of this this process. Uh, this great book by by Verity McInnes uh, on 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 the army officers' wives in the in the American West and in British India, and she shows uh, in in a wonderful manner uh, how, how these women. Uh, Gain role as this as these guardians of, of of middle class respectability in pl- both places how they operated uh orchestrated the home uh, as a site to show their class to show how they could live a respectable white li live lives uh, uh, how, wherever in the world they were uh So there's this kind of a, it's very fascinating. It's one of the things I'm I'm interested right now in different places, uh, especially in German South West Africa, in the American West, how middle class colonial cultures are being experienced in in these these different locations.
1: And finally, to kind of bring things full circle a little bit, we discussed uh, at the outset of the interview, in your own personal context, how the West has for a very long time had a central place in popular culture, both uh, in the United States and about the United States. And the book's final chapter, uh, called Imperial Eyes, it describes this global cultural West. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, the Imperial Eyes chapter is, is... Probably my favorite of all these chapters is... Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: there's, there's too, actually.
2: It's a lot of fun to read. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of interesting stuff there. And, uh, and you just came across these different kinds of uh, connections, and uh, it was it was amazing. Of course, it, the imperialized chapter is part of the European fascination of the West, and it has these political uh, ramifications, for example, in imperial Germany and even in Nazi, Nazi Germany. Uh, but one aspect of the chapter is, uh, is these cultural connections, uh, how different colonial uh, settings uh, were being displayed in in, in Europe and North America in uh, these expositions or or shows. They they kind of came in so rich variety of of shapes and forms. Uh, Of course, we all know Buffalo Bills' Wild West and other Wild West shows, but these were part of a much larger phenomenon uh, at that time. Uh, They were uh of course this world affair the, the, the big affairs uh had uh different indigenous peoples from across the world uh participating uh usually in, in building, because ethnic villages and these kind of uh supposedly savage performances that people um especially white middle class people but also working class people came to see in record numbers Take, takes for example um uh, there was the the lack of the, lack of the zoo were hired uh, by one Carl Hagenbeck. Uh, uh, to up, uh to Hagenbeck all opened a, a permanent zoo outside Hamburg in it was 1907 or something like that. And Hagen, Hagenbeck had a, had for 20 years already brought different kind of exotic animals, uh, but also exotic peoples uh in these touring groups that toured all across. Uh, Western Western Europe, and it not only included Native Americans, but it included uh, 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 different African tribes. Uh, it only included Sami people, to where I live, uh, uh, and it's kind of interesting connection as that, that as well. But it, after opening his zoo, Hagenbeck brought people perform in these zoos, and this is one of the things that uh, uh, I did, was not familiar with before writing this book. And it's one of the phenomena I find that most my students know, uh, relatively little, that, P- that the ensues were depicting in Europe and the ensues uh, were part of this popular culture. They not only had uh, exotic animals as they have today, but they also had these people performing and living in these exotic, supposedly exotic villages. And millions of Europeans went to gaze at them. And often the people were uh, portrayed as, as 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 savages, as as almost non-human, as kind of this uh, idea of uh, social Darwinism that uh, that was how people used to be. That now we are civilized in Europe. That we don't have to have to do that anymore. And there was also kind of very uh, acute knowledge of, of of the colonial situations in these these things. Uh, after the Anglo-Zulu War, when during the anglo Sulu Wars in South Africa, when the British suffered uh, uh, one of their more famous famous losses in Nevada, Uh soon after that, the Zulus were performing in London and New York and in Berlin and in Paris, and people went to see them. Like that, it was a, the cra- the latest craze in in in, in this kind of uh, showmanship. This is, uh, from modern perspective, these these are these are really. Uh, there's uh, this lost for words almost, and some of the scholars today call these as human human zoos, and that was what they, in a sense, actually were. So that one one perspective on this, on this uh, imperialize uh, how how popular culture was shaping. But of course, there are others as well. Western movies, there are Western uh, novels. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper's um, *Last of the Mohicans* is, is still alive and well in, in many ways, especially uh, uh, in different parts of, of Europe. Uh, reprints, television series, all these things are happening on, on, on these old novels. Buffalo Bill was, of course, a dime novel hero before he was a he was a showman. Uh, and one of the things that for personally, for me, as as a Finn, uh, you know, these uh, these Western comic books, which as as, as I was uh, reading Western comic books like like Tex Willer or Lucky Luke or Lieutenant Blueberry as a kid, I never realized that they were actually European. They all was, they all were European, and I never realized that nobody in the U.S. or almost nobody in the U.S. has ever heard of Tex Willer or, or yeah. Blueberry uh, because they were so 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 big in their days and they are still being reprinted and text filler is actually still he's just turned 70 the the, the comic book uh, and in finland you get uh, one new text filler uh, com- graphic novel at least every month or even more so and it's the second uh second uh most popular comic book uh in finland after after walt disney's uh donald duck uh <sighs> It's, it's and it's still it's still 2015. I, I, I got to th- and this this when I was covering this, uh, it was like I don't know how many thousands of pages of new text filler adventures every year. I I I, I don't know, what, but it was a lot. And it's it's it's, it's striking, uh, this striking and this transnational uh, obsession with the American West that Europeans and there are all different sorts of of theme parks still in Europe. Uh, most of them I haven't I haven't visited yet. Uh, that have these Western themes. And, of course, there's Karl May, the famous German novelist who sold tens of millions of copies in his day. And there's still a Karl May festival in Germany every year, every summer. And uh, to top it all off, like I end the book, uh, the Euro Disney, or whatever it's called these days, outside Paris, still has a Buffalo Bill Wild West show, dinner show entertainment. Haven't been there yet, but... But have, I guess I have to go at, at some point yeah, I think because, because point. the program is, is 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 pretty much the exact copy of what Buffalo Bill himself was doing hundred years ago. So the program hasn't changed, and they still hire Native American performers uh, to the show. Uh, hopefully, they are they are getting paid better than they were back in the days. But still, a uh, Bill um, Wild West show in, in, in uh, at the heart of Europe uh, today. It is, it's, 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 it's something uh, I don't know I, 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 I gotta realize why but yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, <clears throat> as you said um, earlier this is it's a short book but it's a book that really packs a punch there's a lot in here yeah. and I'm yeah. wondering what you hope readers will take away from this book if there's one one theme or one message that you hope readers come away with what might that be
2: I I hope that readers realize are uh, actually uh, or, or somehow even Struck by how transnational the West has been and is, how the world and the West are kind of inseparable in many ways, how the, the, the and how this West has been shaped by by transnational forces, and, and how it has, in its turn, shaped, for example, the Europeans' uh, uh, popular culture. Or oh, just to mention one example, this kind of idea that uh, transnational is essential. To the West and for scholars of course and for students, I hope this book uh, uh, encourages them uh, to pursue these kind of uh, research avenues further because this is I only scratch the surface here. let's be honest there's a lot of different as I could could have included uh, there's relatively little environmental history here, for example or or something like that and there's a lot of these avenues that you can push forward and and explore more. That's that's the main... this book, in my, my perspective, to encourage people to think transnationally and to continue research in the future as well.
1: I was uh, looking through your CD in preparation for this interview, and okay. you've been very busy and very prolific uh, in the last few years. And I'm wondering if you have any other projects that are coming down the pike that you might be working on next that maybe you can give us a brief preview of? I
2: have, t- I have too many projects. So. <laughs> 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 too little time and too many more projects. Uh, 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 one of the things I've actually, it's under contract already uh, by with Palgrave uh, is a book on, 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 on uh, uh, anthology I'm editing on 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 German and U.S. colonialism how they're being connected. Uh, there's a there's this uh, different types of connections being explored. Uh, policies, uh, uh, people uh, moving, uh, influencing co- colonial decisions back and forth. And that's that's one of the things. And it's it uh, uh, and that's already under contract and it has uh, really terrific terrific author roster, including under Zimmermann, uh, or Sebastian Conrad, uh, Gregor Tom, uh, and many others. Uh, uh, and the second project, uh, already also under contract uh, uh, with Radledge, uh is a, is a, is, a, is an also a global a global impressing uh, world impressing project uh, that I'm editing editing with uh, together with Rebecca weaver Hightower from North Dakota uh, State University. Uh, and it's about the settler colonial world in film. It's titled uh, Cinematic Settlers, the settler colonial world, uh, and film. So we have different, uh, entries on, 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 movies from, uh, North America, of course. But we have Australian films, uh, being, uh, analyzed. We have New Zealand films. We have South Africa there. We have actually, uh, one movie from Soviet Union. Ah. Uh, been analyzed as a, as a soviet eastern uh, uh not a western but an eastern and and, and uh, different uh of course german there's a couple of german uh, uh movies be, being analyzed there as well and the cast uh the movies are an international grouping but also the writers come from new zealand australia europe south africa uh, and north america oh. of course so these two are, are already under contract and they should be so they should come out uh, next year or 2021 at, at the latest. So busy with these these ones uh, at the moment.
1: Great! I look forward to reading those.
2: Okay, good, good.
1: Doctor Yanni Lati. Is an Academy of Finland research fellow and adjunct professor of history at the University of Helsinki. And his newest book is The American West and the World Transnational and Comparative Perspectives, which was published with Routledge just in the last couple months in 2019. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Yanni.
2: Thank you. It was, it was, it was great fun and, uh, and a privilege. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed this.